HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Cabot Creamery, celebrating 100 years of being a dairy farm family-owned cooperative. Learn more at cabotcheese.coop. That's cabotcheese.coop. This week on Meat and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads. Our customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years. I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India, and out there there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya. Parathe Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, October 30th, 2019, and this is the 232nd episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is an amazing pastry chef, cake artist, and entrepreneur, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to be a storyteller. And of course, I mean, be a great storyteller who shares narratives in compelling and meaningful ways. Now, how does one do this? Well, that's where the creativity lies. Stories can be told through many mediums, not just by words and sentences. We can express ourselves through all of our senses, from touch to smell, sight, sound, and taste. We are all unique and we all have stories and tales to tell. So find ways to share them and in doing so, make lasting impressions. That's my tip today. 
Now I'm really happy to have my guest here with me in the studio. It is Penny Stankowitz, pastry chef, cake artist, and founder of Sugar Couture, and chef instructor of pastry and baking arts at the Institute of Culinary Education, otherwise known as ICE. Strongly influenced by her years as a filmmaker, Penny strives to tell a story in every cake she makes. A graduate of NYU Tisch School of the Arts, as well as ICE, Penny worked with John George von Richten's Spice Market under Chef Pichet Ong, using her storytelling skills for custom cakes. She found all of her artistic abilities and detail-oriented nature could be applied to her cake creations. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Sherry. What a lovely introduction. Thank you. Well, I'm super excited to have you here, and I'm I'm a, I mean I'm a fan. I've uh, I've worked with you. I've had you make cakes for me because you're just so talented. So um, I'm excited to share your story with with my listeners. Thank you so much for having me. I love making your cakes. They're always the best celebrations. Ah, thank you. So let's let's go back to. The beginnings or uh, your childhood. <laughs> like, were you were you into food and 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 baking when you were younger? Yes and no. Um, honestly, my mom was a single mom and she didn't have time to do a lot of things. I kind of like joke that my childhood was mashed potatoes in a box kind of a story. And okay. So when I got older and I started to cook for myself, then I got more and more interested as it went along and got more and more obsessed. But no, I didn't come from a food culture at all. I came from a single mom in the 70s who everything was in a can or a box. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Connecticut. Okay. So then when you you went to school for for film. Yeah. So my first, I've always followed pretty serious artistic passions in one way or another. My first pretty serious one was filmmaking. I went to NYU and I was a filmmaker for many, many years, produced and did all kinds of things in the world. We made a lot of documentaries, got to see the world, got to go to, you know, I mean, I got to go to the best festivals at one point or another. I got to travel. I got to do a lot of great things with film. And I really loved it. But somewhere deep down inside, there was always, like, I just wanted to cook. Like, when I would get depressed or I would get sad, I couldn't sleep at night, I'd wake up and I'd cook. And there was a part of me that always thought, that I should listen to that voice, but I didn't really know how to listen to that voice because I was already a grown-up with a committed career that I really did love. And then I went to ICE, and I went just for fun, honestly. It was just kind of following my heart, and I didn't have any intention of doing anything with it. I just thought, this is something I want to do with my time. And then when I got to the end, it was the cake and the chocolate and all the kind of stuff that you could really tell stories with, you could really be creative with. I mean, you can be creative with all of it, truthfully, honestly. But for me... When I was working on a really long documentary film and it was taking like eight years to make, it's absurd, (laughs) it took eight years to make a film, but it did. And so the immediate gratification of it, the fact that I could make something and turn it around so quickly and then move on to the next creative project really appealed to me. Yeah, so when you went to ICE, was it the full culinary program or was it pastry? It was pastry, Okay. but it was the full professional program. Okay. And um, so after that, you, you applied for a job? Or nope. Pichet, no. Pichet found you? <laughs> <laughs> so 
Somebody found somebody. Um, yeah, I worked um, at Spice Market for a while with Pache Ong, uh, who I swore hated me for the first I don't know how long. He's a very unique creature. So. He, he is. I, I know him very well, but I've, I've never worked in a kitchen with him. So. Yeah, one of my favorite stories is how he burnt with 350 degree caramel. And he's like, oh, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. <laughs> but it's cute. Um, no, I really I learned a lot from him about flavor and about new combinations and the importance of salt and all kinds of amazing things. But I already had a full-time job, so I wasn't... And I knew I didn't... I loved the restaurant environment. I loved being a part of it, but I also knew that that wasn't really the direction I was going to go into. And I didn't really have a direction per se. I just knew I wanted to have that experience behind me. Yeah, so then what led you to to start Sugar Couture and start making cakes and, and leave filmmaking? It was very gradual for me. I didn't set out with an anticipation of opening a business or doing it full time. It was just a creative passion that I kind of had to listen to. And so I would do it slowly on the side. I built a portfolio. Then I did the next thing. I always kind of looked at it as, what's the next thing that I have to do? Okay, I need business cards. Okay, I need a website, whatever that happened to be at the time. And I slowly built a portfolio. And it grew from there. And I actually struggled quite a lot with the idea of switching careers because I didn't, you know, filmmaking is not nothing. Like my identity was really wrapped up in right. doing this thing. And so I kind of just let it happen naturally. And at a certain point, one would take over the other. And that's what happened. And I never really looked back. Although now I'm kind of like, now that I've been doing it for so long, I'm really interested in trying to find new ways of combining the food and the media in a way that maybe hasn't been done before. But we'll see. Ah, interesting. And that sounds that sounds cool. And I don't know, could be could be a really exciting new new chapter. But so, when you first started making cakes, were you making? How did you? I know you've worked with some celebrities along the way, but like, how did you? Like, who were some of your first clients? And were you doing these specialty cakes, or and then how did you get into the wedding cakes that you do? If I'm honest, and I'm really am painfully honest, um, <laughs> Craigslist. I, I literally found clients on Craigslist. As long as they were paying for my supplies, paying for my mistakes, then I was happy. And so yeah. I just learned. I mean, I didn't, I had no idea I would be able to sculpt something until I said to somebody, yeah, sure, I'll sculpt that for you. Right. And then found out that I could. So it really kind of just grew. And I, I don't think... I think when you look at my work, if you look at it in overall, and you know me, you might be able to say, okay, that's my work. But I think that what I do is kind of a chameleon. I kind of take on something of sort of every client. So I absorb what they're saying to me and then find a way to express it through my hand, through my toolbox, as I kind of like to say. So I... I don't think there's one particular thing. There was no one particular path. If a challenge kind of seemed interesting to me, I pursued it. Right. And there's nothing wrong with Craigslist. I used to use, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we all did. Back in it the was, day. it was a different time. Yeah. Um, so, so what about flavors and flavor profiles that you, you typically go to and how's that changed over the years too? When it comes to custom cakes, people are serving large groups usually. I mean, you're rarely serving 20 people. You're often serving 70, 100, 300 people. So they tend to be very safe in their choices because they want the largest amount of people to be happy. Okay, so 
vanilla is a big choice. It just is because, you know, they just don't want to scare people. And I pride myself on my cake being delicious as well as beautiful. Hopefully. Thank you. It is. Um, I can vouch. But I work really hard for that. And not everybody can own that. And some people can. And that's great. But that's one of my identifying things. Um, My signature flavor, as I'm sure you know well, is my lemon ginger cake and passion for buttercream. Super bright, super tropical. And it creates sort of like a something sort of like sexy, something sort of fun that, that people can say that the cake is. But it's really a lemon cake on steroids. It's also very accessible. So at the end of the day, you can take certain risks on the aesthetics depending upon the client, but you can't really take so many risks on the flavor because people are worried about nut allergies and who's going to like this. The other day I did a private class with somebody and she said, okay, I need to know how to make a wedding cake. It can't be chocolate. There's still somewhere a mentality that a wedding cake can't be chocolate. Interesting. But it only really matters if you don't like chocolate. You know, it's your cake. Nowadays also most people are paying for their own weddings, probably percentage-wise. So get what you want. Don't, don't right. like, prescribe to some old idea of what a wedding cake is. Get what you like. I think from what I see online and people posting that people have gotten more adventurous or taken risks with cakes and wedding cakes and and even that it's not as traditional as it was, let's say, 10, 20 years ago. But that's interesting with chocolate cake or thinking maybe it has to be X many tiers or, you know, have have a certain look. Yeah, I think that, you know, you you have an idea of what a wedding cake is. And, you know, it's a a more courageous person who's going to find a way to insert themselves into that cake. Yeah, so so how how long? (laughs) How many hours? Because your work is so detail-oriented. Thank you. I know cakes are all different sizes, and but typically on a project. Like, how long does it take you to make a cake and then... And then how concerned are you about the delivery of the cake? Because <laughs> I feel like that's the that's like the really tricky part. You work so hard on this and you have to get it to the location. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not the fun part, definitely. <laughs> um, so I've been doing this for a while. So what takes me an hour might take somebody else five hours. I mean, I learned that as I teach too, right? But right. Just because I can snap this up in 10 minutes doesn't mean other people can. So with that in mind, I never spend less than eight hours on a cake, and it can top off at 40 or 50, depending upon how elaborate and how crazy it is. So on an average, a wedding cake is going to take me anywhere between 12 and 18 hours, depending upon what the final you know design is. And as far as the delivery goes... This is in New York, right? <laughs> you can't walk across the street without hitting a pit, pit um, uh, pothole. Right. So it's definitely anxiety-provoking, and it's definitely stressful. And I've had a couple of, you know, crazy moments that happen, but luckily they're almost all very, very far in the past. And you find ways. I deliver the cakes cold as much as humanly possible. That keeps them stable. I deliver them closer to the event time so that, you know... People yeah. hanging out don't stick their fingers in the cake or whatever the case <laughs> might be, you know. But delivering in delivery in general is stressful because you're putting this really fragile thing into a car and moving it. But, you know, I've gotten really good at it. 
I, I can imagine. <laughs> like your gig. Oh, my God. <laughs> when they, yeah. Sherry had this amazing party at the Willem Vale Hotel, and they're like looking at me like, going to carry this cake up a flight of stairs. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not carrying that. That cake was was it was it was epic i mean you for people listeners um i had a a five-year 200 plus episode uh, episode party this summer at the william vale in williamsburg and penny made a cake for me and it was it had a, a giant microphone on the cake and and it was it was a it was a very elaborate cake that really captured that I have a podcast and I'm celebrating this this occasion, um, and yeah, you showed up with it. And it was like, how are we going to get this on the rooftop? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what are we going to do with it when we get it on the rooftop? Yeah. So every every new location has its own little adventure wrapped in one way or another. Yeah, and I wonder if you. I feel this way personally, especially when a cake's made for me and my own party. Like, I don't want to cut into it and then dive in and enjoy it, even though that's why it's a cake. That's, that's what, what I you're want su- you to That's do. what you're supposed to do. But it's like, I want to preserve it. I want to save that part over there. You know, that's so cool, you know. do you, So you don't have any no. sadness about people, like, cutting into the your 14 hours of labor? <laughs> Not even a little bit. Why? Yeah. If, if it was just going to be something to sit on your shelf, I could have made it out of clay or anything else. It would have been a lot easier, a lot less fragile, a lot, sus- lot less susceptible to humidity and the weather and everything else that goes into that. I, I made it because I want you to eat it. And I have no problem at all with it being destroyed. It should be destroyed. It becomes a memory. It becomes it almost like, don't you think in some ways that the cakes actually become more important when they're a memory than when they're actually there? That's a good point. Yeah. You know, like they become sort of symbolic of the event. I like to think of them as centerpieces for the events. And if people are talking about them later, you know, the more you talk about something after the fact, it kind of just grows and grows and grows in your mind. People are still talking about the cake from are my they? party. They are. Yeah. And also the, another cake that I had you you make for me a couple of years ago was uh, for a birthday party for my father. And you made this this basketball with the Syracuse logo on it. And... People are still talking about that cake. <laughs> See, like that, but that's what I do. I don't make cakes. I make memories. And I know that kind of yeah. sounds a little silly in, in a certain way. But at the end of the day, it's cake. It's, you're going to eat it. It's going to disappear. You're going to have a nice moment. And then later, it's going to be a way to tie you into all those good feeling, feelings that you had on that day. Yes. I need to think of what next cake I'm going to have you make for me. <laughs> and on that note, let's take a little break. And we'll come back. And we'll talk more with Penny. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Cabot Creamery is proud to be celebrating 100 years making the world's finest dairy products. Cabot's award-winning cheddars and other dairy products stand apart because of their farmers' tireless dedication to quality and freshness, to healthy land and a sustainable future. A century after they started this journey, Cabot's farmer owners still know what matters most, family and community. The simple truth that we're stronger together than we are apart. That delicious products are the reward of a job well done. That when you love what you do this much, the best is always still to come. 
Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Penny Stankowitz. She's a pastry chef, cake artist, and the founder of Sugar Couture. And she teaches at ICE. Let's talk a little bit about that, your teaching. Do you like teaching? I love teaching. Really? Yeah, I really do. Did, th- um, did that surprise you that you enjoyed it so much? Like a lot of things in my life, I did yeah. not set out to do it. It kind of fell into my lap, and I realized that <clears throat> I was kind of good at it. And part of it, I realized I was kind of doing it at the bakery, too, you know, because you'd always have these young right. people starting off in their careers, and you're showing them how to do things. And for whatever reason, I'm not so bad at it. I don't know that I always have all the patience that I should as a teacher, but generally speaking, I'm pretty good at it. And I really... Look, I've been telling people what to do for like 40 years, so now someone's paying me to do it. That's <laughs> how I feel about that. That's funny. What, what are you teaching? What specific classes? Um, well, I teach in the pastry and baking professional program, so I do that. But I mostly do the, the section with the wedding cakes and the chocolate and the sugar work and kind of, you know, again, the artistry stuff. Right. And, and what's, what's most popular? And have you, I don't know, what are people signing up for most into these days? So I have a lot of recreational classes that I do, too, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know. They've been doing really well lately. Yeah. It's hard to know what people are going to want on any given day. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's a it's a mixed crowd over there in terms of um, people who have some experience and know what they're doing and people who are just interested in taking this fun, entertaining class for a couple of hours. So that's actually one of the challenges of it, like how to gear those classes to people who are just there for entertainment for the evening. Right. Well, it all, I'm thinking you, you just, I mean, you were a student there. You went there as being like, oh, hobby, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. turned into your career. So I'm sure there's, you know, you, it's interesting because you're on, you've seen, you were on that side now that you're on the other side. So you might be seeing people coming to your classes or taking class being like, oh, I just want to, you know, perfect my, my, my sugar artistry for my my home cooking or whatever and then turn into a career i i haven't been teaching long enough that i see the long-term results of that Mm -hmm. so i don't know what people are doing two three four five years but i i definitely know that i see them come in even in the smaller recreational classes thinking "Mm, maybe this is something i'm interested in and then decide to move forward and, and get a little more serious about it yeah who inspires you as far as other pastry chefs or cake people? Do you have, or were there mentors for you at, when you first started out? You know, it's one of probably my pitfalls in life is that I didn't really search out a lot of mentor, mentors. Pache has been yeah. instrumental in a million ways, and so I'm super grateful to him and always will be. He's a friend and a mentor and a teacher and all of those things. Um, but... I've honestly always kind of been the person who, if I want to learn how to do something, I kind of teach myself. And so I read whatever I can and I absorb whatever I can and then I figure it out. So I don't like the word self-taught because no one's self-taught because you you look to other people regardless, you know, but I... I don't, I never studied any, under anyone for cake decorating. I never pursued it that way. I, and I'm glad I didn't because I'm teaching someone right now. She's super, super talented and it's an independent thing. And I watch her make the flowers just like I make the flowers. Will someday she find her own way of making them because she learned from me or will she always do it the way I do it? I don't know, but I know that by being self-taught, 
I have no choice but to figure out how I want to do it. And right. I, it also means that I'm always learning. So yeah. I've been saying a lot lately, I'll be working on my rose for the rest of my life. As long as I'm making roses in one form or another, I'll be working on it and perfecting it. It's never going to really be done. So my inspiration comes from art and architecture and fashion and interior design. It comes from everywhere else but cake because I don't think you can do something new with cake or any medium if the only medium you're looking at is the one that you're working in currently. Yeah, I agree with all that. Now, you had a retail shop for a bit in yep. in Brooklyn. What was your experience like? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know we can cover it in a few minutes. We've got a few have, minutes. The, the tough notes of it. I mean, I know it's hard. It's a yeah. hard business. It was something that I had to do. If I hadn't done it, I would have always wondered what it would have been like to do, mm-hmm. and it would have been a regret. But it's now that it's gone, I'm also very happy it's gone, so it's yeah. kind of challenging for me. It, I, I've always wanted, since I started cooking, I always had the idea that I would have a bakery someday. And then I did it. It's New York likes to think that they're supportive of small businesses, but I, I didn't find it very supportive. The environment is, you know, between the expenses and all of that, it's so hard to get something stable in the short period of time that you have. You know, like, I... I understand that most businesses are not successful until five years in, realistically, like really right. solidly successful. Yeah. You don't have that kind of time. And it's, it was just really hard. The staffing was really hard. Yeah. You know, it was just, and I didn't mind the hard work. Like the hard work was great. And then after a while, it was just dodging bullets. So I'm, I'm really glad I did it. I got a lot of great life experience. I got a lot of experience about being an entrepreneur and running a business, a retail business specifically. I don't think I would do it again. I might do something else, but I, I, I don't think yeah. I would open another bakery. At the end of the day, people need to eat. They need to have a sandwich. They need to have a salad, whatever the case it is. They don't necessarily need to have a cupcake or whatever it is you're making. Right. So it's... You're already, it's it's not an easy sell. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a, I don't know, it's an add-on. It's a bonus. It's exactly. a, it's dessert. You're, you know, if you're, you know, but yeah, people need, I mean, I get it. It's, um. yeah, it's a, it's a very hard business. Uh, and, and um, I think it's, I think your take or your, 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 how you're expressing it is, is, is really nice that, you know, you want to experience it. You would regret it if you didn't, but maybe you don't need to do that again now. <laughs> Not that specific thing, though. No, yeah, do yeah. Again. But I learned a lot from it, and I wouldn't take it away. You know, I'm a better entrepreneur for it. I'm a better person for it. Yeah, well, that's nice. Okay, let's ask my let's let's go back to my last it's actually not my last episode but it's my episode 229 when I asked my guests to ask you a question so this episode was with Gramercy Taverns executive chef Michael Anthony and pastry chef Moreau Uskukovich and Gramercy's celebrating its 25th anniversary this year which is mind-blowing but I asked them to ask you a question so here it is Every time I see, you know, she does wedding cakes a lot, right? And that's yeah. what I see on, on her Instagram and her work does sugar work and uh, flowers. 
is amazing, outstanding. And you know, whenever I see that, I feel like I have a millions of questions. <laughs> I'm like, how do you do this? <laughs> like, I would really love to. Um, yeah. Can I come and trail with you, and you can teach me how to? Nice <laughs> to make the. But you know, her her flower work especially is really. I have no words. So, okay, a question. Penny, can we come and visit your yeah, workshop? Yeah, can we come? Can you teach us, please? Yeah, the first part was Moreau, and then that was Michael chiming in there. But they, <laughs> they yes, can, can they come? Yes, of course they can come. I'll come to you. We'll make it a day. You feed me, I'll show you sugar flowers. That's amazing. That's such a great compliment. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, really nice. Yeah, I, I mean, Moreau, as a pastry chef, yeah. you know, like in his, his, his work is... Fabulous and delicious too. So, I was thinking you guys should like trade off. You know, you go there, they go. You know, you both get to see us peek into each other's world. Yeah, let's make that happen. <laughs> it's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah, your sugar flowers. Even though they're they'll never be done, <laughs> they'll never be perfect. But they they pretty but much that are. What, isn't that what makes things perfect? The fact that they'll never be done. I guess so. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Awesome. Let's take another break here and we will come back and we will play my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. And we're back. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Penny Stankwitz, and it's time for my speed round game. All right. So what this is, is I name a couple of things, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Vanilla. That's because everyone wants the vanilla cake. (laughs) (laughs) Really good vanilla. Really good vanilla. Okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? In. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail? Cocktail. Tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Tipping. Fondant or buttercream? (laughs) (laughs) You're going faster than lightning and now... Fondant for visuals, buttercream for eating. (laughs) <laughs> I'm glad you have a complica- more complicated answer for that one, but that, that's good to know. How about teaching how to make sugar flowers, cookie decorating, or modeling chocolate? Which one I would teach? Yeah, which is your favorite to teach of those? Sure. Or, or of any anything you teach? Sugar flowers. Sugar flowers. Last two. Cheese plate or dessert? Dessert. <laughs> Duh. Duh. Manhattan or Brooklyn? 
Ooh, that's another tough one. Really? I didn't move to Brooklyn to... I didn't move to Manhattan. I moved to Brooklyn. But now Brooklyn. I started off very Manhattan and now Brooklyn. How long have you been in Brooklyn now? 12 years. But okay. I was in Manhattan for like 22, 20, 25, maybe longer. I don't know. I've been here so long, I can't even count it anymore. Yeah. Well, I've always lived in Manhattan, so I don't know... I don't know. Come you to know. Brooklyn and it'll, it'll suck you right in. Apparently, that's what it does. That's I what it does. I feel, I feel like kind of half of my world in in New York lives in Brooklyn, and the other half lives in Manhattan or elsewhere, too. But mostly it's those two boroughs. Well, I feel partially responsible for dragging you here when I had the bakery, and you were <laughs> spending all that time in Williamsburg. I, I like the L train when it runs. Yeah. <laughs> No, I, I'm in Brooklyn a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, no, you don't have to feel bad at all. No, I I, I was taking ownership oh, of it. Oh, taking ownership of it. <laughs> yeah. I'm giving, yeah. okay, I'll give you the ownership. <laughs> Bringing you to Brooklyn, though. Just true, kidding. true. And, yeah, the neighborhoods, how they're changing so constantly. Much. It's, yeah, Brooklyn Brooklyn is very cool, as we, as we sit here in Bushwick. And speaking of Brooklyn, let's talk about this uh, for industry news. So today in the New York Times, the restaurant review was of Peter Luger Steakhouse in Brooklyn. And Pete Wells um, kind of, you know, slammed it. Kind of. <laughs> kind of. Satisfactory. The title was Peter Luger Used to Sizzle, Now It Sputters. Um, yeah, it was a harsh review. It was, I don't know. I mean, it... He noted how Frank Bruni had last reviewed the restaurant back in 2007 and it gave it two stars. So it was 12 years ago. Um, I don't know. What was your, your take? Or you dine at Peter's Luger's a lot? This is another complicated one because yeah. I don't disagree with the review. But yeah. I, it's funny because my husband and I had driven by over the weekend and literally had the same conversation like, I want it to be something. I want it this, to be this iconic place, but then you go there, and I don't feel like paying $20 for a plate of sliced tomatoes and onions. Yeah, <laughs> you that, know what I mean? that line, that, that was, a, I, I noted that line. He said, uh, for sixteen ninety five sliced tomatoes that taste like 1979. Ouch. Ugh. Ouch. Yeah. But <laughs> it's not like, I don't know, I'm, I'm of two minds, whereas... There are a lot of places to go, so I don't go there very often because there's so many places to explore and say. On the same point, they've never been anything else, really. Do you know what I mean? Maybe yeah. it's maybe it has gone a little, you know, grittier in certain ways, or or maybe our tastes have changed a bit. Maybe we expect a different level of service, so you walk in there and they're brusque with you. It's not funny anymore, maybe. Right. So I, I think it's complicated. I, I I agree. It's not worth. I, had my husband's 40th birthday there, I think, which was a decade ago. How scary is that? Um, but like it was six, seven, eight hundred dollar yeah. check, you know. And so, if you're gonna be spending that kind of money, you have to offer something to your guests, and right. that's where it gets complicated. Yeah, I, I mean, I had a, I don't know, my take one, one take was, does this need to be reviewed? Was one yes. take I had, yeah. Um, I don't think this review will hurt them at all. I think people are still going to go. I think people, I think, as they say, any press is good press. Um, I think maybe even more people will be curious to go, and there's diehard fans that are going to completely disagree with this review. I've already seen some tweets about it. Um, my, I'm not, I'm not a huge 
steakhouse person. Like, I like steak, but I don't, it's not something I, I need to go to my steakhouses on a regular basis. I've had two experiences there, really. I went many years ago. It was probably about a dozen years ago, 10 years ago, and a wintry night. I met some friends. We waited. We went in. We got the, you know, had the whole dinner and steak, and I thought it was delicious, and I really loved that meal. I did remember thinking, why are the lights so bright in here? (laughs) (laughs) It's like the ambiance is like, there's no, it's like shiny, bright lights. It's like, come on, can we, can we dim, dim, dim it up a little bit. Um, and then I don't know if it was last summer, maybe two years ago, I went back for lunch and I, I went and had the burger at the bar. And again, I really, I love my burger. The, there's, there's definitely an attitude there is it's not, it's not necessarily Danny Meyer hospitality, Um, but it's also part of the charm. Yeah. As a restaurant reviewer, he's going to go much more frequently than you or I are going to go. And if, you know, the food was not, they don't change the menu. You know, the menu has been the same since the dawn of time. So if you go one time and you're expecting something better the next time around or something, expecting the same thing and you don't get it, then I get that disappointment, especially when you're paying those kinds of prices. But, you know, the truth is, can I cook an unadorned steak better myself at home in a cast iron pan? Probably. Yeah. And without so, maybe some attitude or waiting in line yeah. and the, the price. Um, it also noted in there how uh, like steakhouses are so popular around around the country, around the world, that as, you know, we're talking about the difficulty of having a retail business, like steakhouses have a formula down that that works, that people want their steak and they're willing to pay these prices. So... I don't know. It's it's very interesting. I was I was surprised you reviewed it though. Yeah. Um, it's almost a why, like you said. Yeah. Not quite sure this needs to be said right now, but. But then I also have to say, every like to a lot of the food blog publications like Grub Street and uh, Eater, they all there were articles about the review. Like everyone was then chiming in about their opinion about it. Like it created a big. A bigger story. Absolutely. So maybe it was time for it to be reviewed. I don't. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. It. it I, I saw a lot of the the comments that people were saying too, and I saw the positive ones that are still pro them, and I saw a lot of negative ones too. Just don't yeah. go. It's the same thing yeah. if you don't like the TV channel. TV show change the channel. You right. Know? Right. Well. It is what it is. And they'll survive and they'll be perfectly fine. Big breaking news today. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to take one more break and we will come back and I will do my solo dining experience and we'll have the final question. This is all the industry on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. 
Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. This week, it's at Justa. Here's the rundown. The location, 320 Sunset Avenue, Venice, Los Angeles, California. The concept, artisanal California deli, bakery, cafe, and market influenced by traditional East Coast delis, European markets, and Parisian bakeries. The owners, Travis Lett, Fran Samaj and Shelley Armistead. So why did I go? So I was out in LA checking out the restaurant scene, and this is a place I've actually been to before, but I just decided it was time to go back. So my experience, um, I was actually in the area because I had had dinner at Dave Baran's new French bistro called Pajoli, and it was excellent. Uh, I skipped dessert though, And as I was leaving, I realized Justa was nearby, and I had been there once during the day for lunch, or I guess brunch, but I was like, I'd never been there at night. So I just decided to swing by and see maybe I could get some dessert. So that's what I did. And they were open, and actually the place was pretty lively. Um, So I was happy with my call. So what did I get? Now, it was hard to decide, but I went with their last slice of banana cream pie, and instead of a usual coffee, I got a salty mocha. So my take, the pie was fabulous. It really hit the spot, and it balanced well with the mocha, which was actually very salty. It was almost a little too salty for me, but between the sweet and the salt, it it worked. So uh, the ambiance. So it's a really gorgeous, industrial, kind of beachy style space. And it's comfortably, I'd say it's comfortably cool aesthetic. Um, it was different at night because it was very dimly lit. Actually, opposite of Peter of a Peter Luger's. This, this had the sexy lighting going on. Uh, they have a large counter where you order from. And uh, behind it's the open kitchen. And then there's a bar in the back that everyone was sitting around. Um, and I know in the back, too, they have a quaint courtyard. So it's perfect for solo eats or gathering with friends any time of day. Interesting tidbit, Justa opened in late fall 2014 as a commissary kitchen providing bread and other products for the Jelena group, and it quickly grew to much more. They source all of their products uh, freshly from SoCal farmers and and their meat and seafood from, from local purveyors. Personal fun fact, so the only other restaurant on this trip that I went back to, I repeated, uh, besides this one, was I went to Squirrel, and there I had their famed uh, ricotta toast. I did it rainbow style with lots of jams and a horch coffee, that specialty they have, and then there I got the cake of the day. I figured I'd talk about cake and desserts on this show, and their cake was brown butter, and it was, it was quite fabulous. So the cost of my meal at Justo was $12.50. That's not including tax or gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I would. Their website's justa.com, and that's G-J-U-S-T-A. Because I think that's how you pronounce it, but I'm not exactly sure. Sounds have, right. Okay. Have, have, you, have you been there? I have not. Now you may want to go. May, maybe want to go. This is a great... I mean, they also have a restaurant called Jelena. Uh, very popular. Um, they kind of... they. I feel like they figured out the formula with food service ambiance. You know, they kind of have a little niche over there. And the L.A. style. L.A. style for sure. I think they're supposed to be opening in New York. Oh. Maybe a Jelena. I don't know what happened to that project. 
I'll have to, I'll keep you all posted. <laughs> okay, it's time for the final question. My next guest is Claire Reichenbach. She is the CEO of the James Beard Foundation. So Penny, what would you like to ask Claire? Wow, this is, uh, there's so many things. Um, the easy question probably for her is what, she's, it's been a year and a half now, give yeah, or take. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what's she most proud of that she's done in the last year and a half? That's a great question. Thanks. Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to have her on and talk to her because it was, yeah, a big change for James Beard Foundation, um, bringing her on and yeah, what has happened in the past year and a half. Yeah. I, I, I know a little bit about her background and I was just also kind of wondering, like, if you want a secondary question, um, because she comes from a business place, but a media business place, and how that kind of could change her her fingerprint on the food world. Yeah. Okay. If I have time, I'm going to yeah, ask her okay. both. <laughs> and that's the show. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations. Thanks. On all of your beautiful, delicious uh, desserts, cakes, and sugar flowers, and everything else that you tell stories with and I'm glad to know you thank you I look forward to making your next cake yeah me too <laughs> because they're they're they are so cool and then they are so delicious you have that you know and so I'm I'm a, a customer <laughs> thanks for saying I appreciate that you're welcome my guest today has been Penny Stankowitz she is pastry chef cake artist and founder of Sugar Couture and she's also a chef instructor of pastry baking arts at the Institute of Culinary Education. You can find her on social media at penny.stankowitz at sugar underscore couture, and her website is sugar-couture.com. You can find me on social media at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. Websites, BayerPublicRelations.com sherrybear.com and allintheindustry.com. You can also find all of our shows archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Jeet, and thanks again to Penny. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with another live show. Hope you'll tune in then, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.